0: Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move into a reality. With Squarespace's beautifully designed templates and customizable features, creating a beautiful website is a simple and intuitive process. Just add and arrange your content with the click of a mouse. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code SO SMART to get 10% off of your first purchase. Hey. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 102. Are you weird? I mean, are you a weird person? Like, a weird. A member of the weirds. You probably are, and you don't know it. Think about this. Chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you're extremely weird in many ways. But in one very particular way, you are so weird, it has scrambled up the manner in which psychologists and neuroscientists conduct and analyze their research. The discovery, or maybe even more accurately, the epiphany, the realization that their subjects were weird, has led to a restructuring among every discipline devoted to the study of the human mind. And that didn't happen all that long ago. In fact, the study, the one that really put the weirds on the map, came out in 2010. The title of the study? The Weirdest People in the World? Question mark. <laughs> this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I am your host, David McCraney. And on this episode, we will speak with one of the authors of that study, Stephen J. Heine, who in 2010, along with his colleagues, Joseph Henrich and Ara Norenzayan, collectively slapped every psychologist in the world and told them, psychology is just too damn weird for its own good. And if we are ever going to understand the human mind... That has got to change. Weird, by the way, means Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. How did weirds nearly derail our understanding of the human mind? You'll learn all that after this break. I find it so exciting to gain new insights into the stuff that interests me, and I'm sure you do too. And that's why I love telling you about The Great Courses Plus. You get unlimited access to a library of more than 8,000 engaging video lectures. Learn from award-winning experts about so many different fascinating topics, psychology, anatomy, mathematics, even photography. With The Great Courses Plus, you can stream lectures all on your schedule start and pick up with your smartphone, laptop, tablet, or TV. Now, I've been watching their brand new course, Brain Myths Exploded, Lessons from Neuroscience. Dr. Indra Viscontis explores some of the most fundamental myths about the human brain and gives us scientific answers to questions like, how are smartphones affecting our intelligence? Can brain games really make us smarter? Are other animals as conscious as humans? Right now, my listeners will receive a free month of unlimited access to The Great Courses Plus when you sign up through my special URL. And here it is, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Whatever your next big idea might be, count on Squarespace to help you create an eye-catching online platform that brings it to life. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to look like an expert right from the start. You even get a unique domain which strengthens your brand and makes it easier for visitors to find you. Plus with Squarespace's award-winning templates, creating a beautiful website is a simple and intuitive process. And you can add and arrange your content and features with the click of a mouse. There's nothing to install, nothing to patch or upgrade, ever. Though, if you do have a question, Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support can help you with any problem, no matter how technical or trivial-seeming. Think of them as your very own IT department. So make your next move and start your free trial at squarespace.com today. Enter the offer code SO SMART to get 10% off of your first purchase. That's so smart. S-O-S-M-A-R-T, make your next move at Squarespace. And now, we return to our program. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. So here's a weird question. Is low self-esteem bad? And if so, is high self-esteem good? I mean, it seems obvious, at least to me it seems obvious, that, you know, my whole life people have suggested you should do everything you can to boost your self-esteem. And if you notice other people have low self-esteem, well, you should help them. You should do something about it. Get their self-esteem up high. But a few years ago, some psychologists began to wonder, maybe the value that we place on high self-esteem isn't a universal human value. And to understand what I mean by that, we need to go through this study by Stephen J. Hainap. Hello, Steve Heine. Heine is a psychologist at the University of British Columbia, and he and his colleagues once partnered with professors from universities in Japan to see if the two cultures differed when it came to notions of self-improvement. The way the study worked was psychologists got the teachers to get together their students into classrooms and give them all the same test. But at the midpoint of the test, they gave the students the answers so far so they could check and see how they were doing. But unbeknownst to the students, half of them had been taking a much harder version of the test than the rest of the class. So, in both North America and in Japan, half of the students were successes and half of them were failures, and they knew it. The teachers then said that they would start the second half of the test soon, but they pretended there was a malfunction with the classroom's computer. And, since it might take a while, they said, look, Everyone, you can pass the time by getting out your notes and studying for the second half of this test as much as you would like. And this was the actual focus of the study. They wanted to see how much effort the passing versus the failing students would put in, and if that time would differ between the two cultures. And that is exactly what they found. The differences were extreme. In North America, failing students slacked off but succeeding students studied harder. In Japan, failing students studied harder, and succeeding students slacked off. So why is this? Because these students had two different kinds of brains. The standard-issue goop in their heads had been shaped by two different kinds of cultures, and thus, they had two different kinds of minds that were affected in two different ways by the exact same situation you know, you, you ask yourself, if you were to ask someone, what is the right way to approach a classroom? Um, you know, people have a sort of a general idea that there is a right way to do it and that your study seems to show that the right way to do it depends on the kind of brains you're doing it in front of. Um, is that a sort of a right way to look at it? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Although, I, I mean, just like emphasize
1: that there, there's, always going to be individual differences. So within any classroom, you're going to find some people who, um, you know, respond really well to pointing out challenges that they have to face, and other people are going to respond really well to pointing out their strengths. But overall, I think that, uh, yeah, in uh, the U.S. and in Canada, there's more of a norm to uh, respond um, to any kind of information indicating your successes. That um, that sort of directing your attention to wh- what it is that you're good at and wanting to focus your efforts at that. And uh, in Japan and uh, in East Asia more generally, uh, there's more of a tendency um, to to focus on areas where there's uh, people see room for improvement. And part of the reason for this is that. Um, people think about abilities different across cultures, that um, uh, in East Asia, people believe abilities are more a product of their efforts uh, than uh, North Americans tend to. I mean, effort's important in North America, too, but it's really important in East Asia. I mean, uh, in in Japan, there are these surveys of what is your favorite word, and one of the words that usually comes up at the top of the list in Japan is effort, And uh, I think effortless would probably rank higher in in uh, English than in effort <laughs> as, a, as a positive word, right? Um, uh, so so I, I I think that yeah, you, you know the, the culture shapes the ways that you think uh, about abilities, and because of that, it shapes the ways that how you respond to uh, feedback about your abilities, um, and it shapes the way that uh, that you're motivated to do your best.
0: So these are generalizations and there's lots of variation and nuance. But generally speaking, the research indicates that Westerners are extremely individualistic and usually jump at any opportunity to assert that individuality and stand out. So for a person from North America, knowing that you are already ahead means that with a little effort, just a little more effort, you might outshine everyone, which is One of the ways we measure achievement in the West, people who stand out from the crowd and seem super successful compared to the rest of us, those people have achieved something. And that's why when the people in this study felt like they were a little bit ahead, they put in more effort. Now, in Eastern cultures, there isn't nearly as much emphasis on individuality. Instead, there is more attention spent on the idea that selves are part of a whole, connected to and influenced by a network of others. And if you are way ahead of the crowd... That's an indication that you can slow down. If you're behind though, less than average, that's when you become extremely motivated to improve, to join the collective. Now, this is a great revelation from studies like this. When you ask how you should teach a classroom with more feedback focused on praising achievement or more feedback focused on when you're falling behind, there isn't a universal answer because there isn't a universal human mind concerning situations like this. Both, Answers are 100% correct. They're the correct approach in both directions. It just depends on the kind of brain that's receiving that feedback. So, when I asked you earlier about whether or not high self esteem is a good thing, that's a trick question. If you grew up in the United States, then yes, it is. People in the United States perform better and are generally happier when they have high self esteem. But in Japan, until recently, there wasn't even a word for self-esteem. It feels like the right way to do something. Like, I was really struck by the self-esteem, about how self-esteem in uh, Eastern cultures is not really that closely correlated with happiness, where it's extremely correlated with happiness in in the West. Because you think, I've thought my whole life, like high self-esteem is an important thing. But it's, and it is important to the kind of, Mind that I have, right? But it's not a universally important thing, and right. that's that's it's, an insane thought. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, I mean, I think it's it's telling that
1: in uh, Japan the word for self-esteem is serufestimu. I mean, it's an imported English word because um, the Japanese words that get closest to it sound quite negative. They, they sound like arrogance. Hmm. Um, and, uh, I think the idea of, you know, focusing on what you're good at is, is kind of suggesting that, well, maybe I don't need to try so hard anymore at making myself better. Cause I think in Japan, these are very closely, um, linked the idea of trying hard and, and improving. And that's sort of the, the emphasis is on this process of always trying to do more and always trying to improve. And that's how you contribute to the success of your company, the success of your family. And, um, I think it's just a much more individualistic uh, attitude in, in the U.S. and much more of a focus on on product and you know and, and achievement. So the, the goal is to um, to you know well, to succeed at your goal. That's that, that's that's what you're trying to do is to to do something well and to, and and to focus on how you've done something well rather than focusing on ways that you might be able to do better uh, the next time. Mm-hmm. I think these are really uh, two quite profoundly different orientations
0: towards life. So until you learn that self-esteem is not a human universal, you have no reason to think otherwise. If everyone you meet and interact with values self-esteem, and it does in fact correlate with improved happiness everywhere you look, you will naturally assume that it must be true for all people around the world. As the researchers pointed out in the test feedback study, you will readily accept and offer advice like, all you need to do is just believe in yourself And you can accomplish anything you want, which seems like great advice. It seems like universal truth, but that's only good advice if you are offering it to someone from North America. For many people in other cultures, that's actually terrible advice. There are many other examples from town to town, state to state, family to family, workplace to workplace. The cultures that shape us remain invisible to us as Heine and other cultural researchers say, it's like water to a fish. And as a result, most human beings suffer from what psychologists call culture blindness, a natural inability to notice that your own thoughts and behaviors are heavily influenced by the culture in which you grew up and the one in which you find yourself currently. One of my favorite examples of this is the smell of cheese. In the West, it's delicious. In the East, in many regions, not so much. To many people in other cultures, cheese is gross, awful, horrible, stinky, hardened, rotten milk. So who is correct? Well, though in opposition, both facts are correct. Cheese is gross. Cheese is delicious. Depending on what kind of brain you have, which on this matter was shaped by culture, not evolution. A study conducted by researchers in the UK had people smell some fake cheddar cheese flavoring and rate how nice the aroma seemed to them. If told ahead of time that the smell was of cheddar cheese, they rated it as being quite nice, but if told ahead of time that they were about to smell body odor, they said it smelled disgusting. Neuroscientists call this cognitive modulation. Culture shaped their very neurons to mediate between the smell and their subjective experiences so that the same smell with two different culturally created labels actually resulted in two different subjective realities that were equally valid. Cheese actually does smell like stinky feet, but if you've been raised in a certain culture and you have a certain kind of mind, then you can get past that fact and eat it anyway. So, what does all of this have to do with the weirds? People who are Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Well, that's the sort of people who tend to go to college in the United States. And when it comes to cultural blindness, the United States is among the most culturally blind cultures on earth. Since most psychological research is done in the United States and done on college campuses, that means Almost all the studies you have ever heard about, from Milgram shocks, to Stanford prison experiments, to the Piaget stages of development, to the Bobo doll being punched by little kids, all of that, even the stuff in recent bestsellers and in TED Talks that you pass around on social media, it's almost all entirely research conducted on North American college undergraduates. So if you were to sort the different kinds of minds made by the different kinds of brains shaped by the different kinds of cultures around the world weirds as sort of a category of person make up a very very tiny number of people they are the atypical human being weirds make up only about 10 to 15 percent of the total human population now amazingly in 2010 as as recently as 2010 This was sort of new information. At least it was epiphanous. This was something that Heine and Joseph Henrich and Arya Norenzayan put out in this sort of landmark paper titled The Weirdest People in the World. I have it here in front of me. It's a gigantic paper with so much information. And it's just, um, it's it's 133 pages. (laughs) It's a big paper. And You know, it comes right out of the gate in the abstract, saying behavioral scientists routinely publish broad claims about human psychology and behavior in the world's top journals based on samples drawn entirely from Western-educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic societies. Researchers, they go on to say, often implicitly assume that either there is little variation across human populations or that these are sort of standard subjects. They're representative of the species as a whole. In other words... For a very long time now, we've assumed that psychology is human psychology, but in many ways, it's been the psychology of weirds.
1: This is sort of my criticism of of my field psychology: is that it is um, it's uh, the most um, American centric of all the sciences that have been studied. That uh, it's the vast majority of psychological research in the world happens in the U.S. and um, the, uh, and which is a curious question in and of itself, why are um, Americans so much more interested in psychology than, than the rest of the world? At, hmm. at many uh, American campuses, it's the most popular major. Much of the rest of the world, it's not even offered in universities, right? So there's so, some peculiar fascination with, with, with psychology. And because most psychology research is conducted with convenient samples of people, because psychology has embraced the, the, the same... Um, assumption that you're talking about there, where it's kind of assumed that, well, any person's brain is as good as anyone else's, why not study the convenient ones, rather than, you know, have to go trekking halfway across the world uh, to study the brains over there. And so, because of that, most studies are done with most convenient populations, which at universities are university students, and then most of the research is happening in the U.S., um, and and the other countries were... uh, are uh, next in line for uh, the most research are all English-speaking countries, the next three are the UK, Canada, and Australia. So the four biggest contributors to psychological research are, are all of these um, English-speaking countries. Um, and uh, they're they're studying the people around them and just assuming that well, you know, these are universal theories without having necessarily tested all of that. And, and the more research that's explored as well, well, how similar are people thinking around the world has revealed that, well, in many respects, there, there's a lot of profound differences. And quite surprisingly, I think in that uh, Japan, which is, you know, very similar to the U.S. in many ways, that it's, you know, uh, a very um, modern, um, industrialized, wealthy society, highly educated society, um, yet uh, there's still some. Pretty profound differences in the ways that people uh, approach life and the ways that they think.
0: Yeah, this I, I saw. I I think I in looking through all this, I I uh, saw um, a video where Paul Ekman said that you know we we basically at this point in in psychology have a psychology of college undergraduates. So like, yeah. So like Exactly. And, and and I think for for me and for many people especially in America we think we have a psychology of the human being when we really have a psychology yeah. of this like subset of human beings.
1: Um Yeah, it's so that's a that is a controversial idea in psychology and um so we have a paper uh, a few years back which we use this acronym weird for mm-hmm. western educated industrialized rich democratic societies. <laughs> And um, and yeah, um, and looking at a, a wide array of evidence of, from psychology studies conducted around the world, the American undergrad is in many dimensions a real outlier in their psychology. They are not yeah. the the typical person or, or the average person. They're an outlier, and uh, they're in the extreme end of a distribution, and so we are generalizing not just from a narrow sample, but from, from an unusual sample, and I think it's a real challenge for psychology to, uh, to internationalize more and to uh, find out the different ways that the, the, the mind operates in different circumstances, <laughs> and that can be different as from Mississippi to, to San Francisco, or it can be different from, uh, you know, a uh, hunting-gathering tribe in Tanzania uh, versus uh, a New Yorker.
0: In in a way, it's exciting because it's like, oh wow, look at all this meat that's that's on the bone, um, yeah. and and it also is kind of weird and scary because it's like realizing that you're that all of biology is is based off of studying blind cave spiders or something instead of yeah <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, yeah I think that's
1: a good example.
0: Um, so so here's something I wanted to know what, what you thought about the. Um, Since Heine and his colleagues' paper about weirds came out, there's been a strong refocusing in psychology and in neuroscience. We now know that there is so much more to understand about human beings than we first believed, and we aren't nearly as far along in our progress as we once thought. It's led to some interesting ideas, too, some really loopy things. For instance, Other researchers have noted that the term weirds is itself a culturally influenced concept and that the letters represent the sort of differences that Westerners tend to think are the most different between cultures. Whereas if that analysis and criticism had been written by someone from another culture, then those letters would probably have been different as well. Much of Heine's work has explored the fact that there isn't one kind of human brain, but many variations. Of course, there are some biological limitations to that variation. For instance, humans can't see as many colors as a mantis shrimp, so none of our thoughts will be concerned with those impossible to see colors. In addition, all sorts of things in our heads are the product of evolution. So the urge to walk upright or the ability to feel anger and empathy, these are things that we inherited from our evolutionary ancestors and the forces that pressure them. Which means, although brains vary, the substrate of consciousness is alike in many fundamental ways. And one quality we all share is also a quality that leads to our variation. Natural selection led to the human brain's amazing plasticity, a widespread malleability that makes all brains capable of amazing feats of rewiring. And that is where culture comes in. Just as we learn a language, we learn a culture, and that becomes the framework by which we begin to build models of reality that help us successfully interact with our environments. As the great anthropologist Marvin Harris once wrote, nothing that an animal does can be said to be free of genetic influence, and that includes our ability to both create and receive cultures. But... Even though everything we think and experience can be reduced down to neurons and synapses, that doesn't mean that just because lots of people tend to behave in a certain way that those behaviors were hardwired into the human brain. Culture is an extremely powerful force, so powerful that Harris compared its rise and spread among the human species as analogous to the Big Bang. Commenting on it, he wrote, Cultural reality comes from, but rises above, ordinary organic reality just as organic reality comes from but rises above its chemical and physical substrates so the takeaway is this the physical biological evolutionarily constructed brain generates the mind and then that brain is shaped by culture which is basically a set of human-generated influences naturally bounded in some way often simply by geography Two brains shaped by two different cultures will produce two different kinds of minds with different behaviors and models of reality and different ways of absorbing information and influences that lead to different ways of contemplating and different methods of mulling over different kinds of abstractions. Cultural influences go much, much deeper than norms, beliefs, customs, music, clothes, and all the other stuff we usually think of as being culture. The great insight from cultural psychology is that our cultural differences extend right down to the neurons that produce our minds so that two people from two different hometowns won't just have different opinions about the right way to do something. They will truly be two different right ways. So this is great with any science that suddenly realizes there's more left to explore. Any science that goes through one of these epiphanies, it, it's a wonderful thing. To scientists and researchers and people all over academia. If psychology so far hasn't been the study of the human mind but instead the study of one kind of human mind, well I think that's wonderful because it means all these supposed human universals from all these famous experiments are actually part of something much larger and much more complex. Gee. that is it for this episode of the you are not so smart podcast you can find more great podcasts like this one at boingboingpodcasts.com you can find previous episodes on soundcloud stitcher itunes and on you are not so smart.com where you can find show notes and all sorts of other stuff related to these episodes the opening music is clash by caravan palace this music is banjo apocalypse interstitial music is usually done by drew garraway We are on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. I am at David McCraney. You can find us on Facebook, just slash YouAreNotSoSmart. And if you want to pitch in, help us hire a reporter. We're getting closer to the goal every day. Just go to Patreon.com slash YouAreNotSoSmart. Pitch in at any level and you get the show with no ads. All right. Soon we'll have a new series on logical fallacies. Look for that coming up in a few weeks.